So we've talked about the doctrine of baptism. Today, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper service. There are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper service. Now, what is the Lord's Supper service? Well, first of all, let's talk about what it's not. It's not a sacrament. It's not Holy Eucharist. It's not a Holy Communion. It's not a Mass. Man has come along over the years and complicated it so badly. Leave it to the simple carpenter of Nazareth to make it so simple. And it's simply a memorial. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Stick our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Once again, your Bible ought to almost fall open right to that passage there. We've been looking at this passage now for, oh, I suppose, nine or ten times as we've looked at this series on the church. Church done right. Church still works. I mentioned the pollster, George Gallup, who does a good job with his polls for the most part, but but he said that he doesn't believe church works anymore, or at least that's what people think, perhaps. But the church does work. And, and we find that truth uttered from the lips of Jesus Christ himself right here in this passage. He says in verse number 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we've discussed this passage before. He's not founding the church on Peter. Peter's not the rock. Christ is. The word rock here is Petra. It's a play on words. It means a huge boulder. The name Peter means Petros in the Greek or pebble, small stone. So Christ is making a comparison here, and he's saying, you're a pebble, but upon this Petra himself, I will build my church. There ought to be no doubt who's building the church and who it's upon from that. And he says this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That tells us we are not on the defense cowering from the devil. We are on the offense with the battering ram, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And so church still works. Now, we, we want to be sure that all things are done decently and in order. That's a phrase we find over in 1 Corinthians 14. And so we've been in this series. I, I think it's important that God's people understand uh, not only what we're doing, but why we're doing it. Why do we do what we do? Some of you have been here for years, and you just, you know, just kind of go with the flow. But there's a biblical reason for what we do here, and I think it's important that we understand that. So let's take again another look at church done right and ask the Lord to bless it here before we start. Father, we thank you now, Lord, for the New Testament church, the local church, the scriptural church. Father, we do thank you now for the privilege we have to be a part of one. And Father, as we discuss another phase of church that being baptism, the Lord's Supper service. Lord, I just pray now that would just help us, please, to understand it that much more. Receive glory and honor out of it all, and we'll thank you for it. We pray now and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we talked about baptism. And scriptural baptism requires four things. Do you remember what they are? 
First of all, a scriptural candidate to be baptized. A baby doesn't qualify, although most uh, so-called baptisms that take place in this area involve babies. You won't find a baby baptized anywhere in the Bible. It must be a scriptural candidate, someone who has been born again. Secondly, it must be by the proper method, which is immersion only. That's the only kind you find in the Bible because of what it means, what it is. And again, most baptisms are not by immersion. But that is scriptural baptism. Thirdly, it must have a scriptural reason. It unites you with a local church. It follows the example that Christ set, who himself walked 60 to 70 miles to get that scriptural baptism. We follow his example. Also, we do it because it's a, it's a right conscience before God, Peter said. And then the fourth thing required is scriptural authority, which is grossly overlooked. It all ties in with baptizing only with God-ordained authority. Now, the Bible says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So we have no question where it, it started with. In fact, Jesus even asked the Pharisees, by what authority did John baptize? So he was sent from God. He had proper authority. He baptized Jesus and the apostles. Jesus, with that group, took and started his church. We read of the beginning of it right here in Matthew chapter 16. Those apostles continued to win others and baptize them. We read that in John 4, verses 1 and 2. And so the church at Jerusalem grows. Christ ascends back up into heaven. That church sends out preachers with with authority to baptize other people, Philip was one. He went over to, uh, to win the eunuch, the Ethiopian, to Christ, and he baptized him. And by the way, I don't think he sent him back without sending some men after him later on to help him get something established there. Peter had authority, and he baptized Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Um, when Paul got saved, there was a preacher by the name of Ananias up in Damascus who probably was the pastor and baptized Paul. Paul and Barnabas themselves were sent out with proper authority uh, across Asia Minor and Achaia and places like that because true baptism must have scriptural authority. Way back in about 250 A.D., there was already great apostasy seeping into the the true church. And uh, apostasy is something we see taking place even in our day. It's been in every day. And there there were those who yoked up with what was called the universal or the Catholic Church at that time even, and they introduced many, many heresies. The Novatians, who were were born-again Christians, rejected those, and they refused to recognize those who had that baptism. They baptized them over again. They were called Anabaptists. Now, I've used the expression... Alien immersion. It's not talking about baptizing Martians. It's basically a a baptism that is foreign or not right. We use the word illegal aliens even yet today. They are those who are, are not legitimate. And so if someone has alien immersion, it's not legitimate. And, and we cannot accept alien immersion. To do so would be accepting their doctrine. To do so would be a temptation to lower the standards and accommodate people. Plus, we would have to uh, receive some and reject others, and somebody would get hurt in the process. So we accept scriptural Baptist baptism. Um, The Mormons baptize by immersion. The Seventh-day Adventists do as well. The Jehovah's Witnesses do as well. You have the Pentecostals. You have even the Church of Christ. And many sincere people within it who, by the way, believe in baptismal regeneration. 
And so we start accepting all those baptisms here, and, and we get those people in prominent positions, and they begin to teach your kids in Sunday school classes, and you can follow it through. You, are, you have all kinds of heresies getting taught here, and, and you also have a destruction of church unity. I'll just read this to you quick. In Ephesians 4.3, it says, "...to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." We have to all be on the same page as a scriptural church. In uh, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul even said to them, everyone hath a doctrine and everyone hath an interpretation. It was a mess. So we want to keep that out. There would be chaos in the church. And in a church with a number of beliefs and doctrines and schisms and such, you might as well drop the name Baptist. We've lost our identity at that point. And that is going to be the prevailing spirit in the last days. We read in Revelation 17 and verse, or in chapter 18 as well, that there's going to be this ecumenical, interdenominational, one world type of religion in the last days where they're going to want to just join up together. And it's getting harder all the time to stay separated biblically because of this. The only way Bible believing Baptists can maintain a purity is to require scriptural baptism, scriptural baptism with proper authority. That is the gate to the church. And it, we need it to prevent different doctrines from seeping in. Now, this stand has never been a popular one. And uh, down through the dark ages and up even into our time, there are those who have been tortured for this, burned at the stake, drowned, imprisoned, because a great price was paid to deliver, if you will, or preserve the faith once delivered unto the saints but we dare not dip the banner. We dare not capitulate in the 21st century. So we've talked about the doctrine of baptism. Today, and that was all review, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper service. There are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper service. Now, what is the Lord's Supper service? Well, first of all, let's talk about what it's not. It's not a sacrament. More about that later. It's not Holy Eucharist. It's not a Holy Communion. It's not a, a Mass. It is not transubstantiation, which is the teaching that, that Jesus Christ literally comes back and He's crucified all over again every time communion is held. That evolved back in the ninth century by the writings of a man by the name of Radbertus. He uh, actually started it, but it was declared a doctrine in 1215 by Pope Innocent the third, by the way, don't let that name fool you. He was anything but innocent. He, he bitterly persecuted the Albigenses of France. Um, in 1204, he ordered 100,000 innocent men, women, and children to be butchered. Born-again Christians, Baptists. He uh, also passed a decree that anyone caught reading the Bible would be stoned to death. And, and uh, declared that at the Lateran Council. So anyway, that's when he declared this transubstantiation thing uh, a new dogma, as he uh, spoke ex cathedra, as they call it there. Well, during his reign, the Inquisition in Europe uh, led to the, the murder of over one million Anabaptists. And anyone, he said this, anyone caught opposing the theology of the Mother Church was to be burned without pity, quote-unquote. And uh, they killed them and took their land and their assets. Now, turn to John chapter 6, if you would. The Church of Rome heavily leans upon this doctrine of transubstantiation. Well, it's also the, the Church of Rome that teaches, for the most part, the, the Bible 
is not to be interpreted literally. And uh, those of you who have my background know that to be true. Yet in one place here where obviously it's speaking in a metaphor or symbolically, they do take it literally. And here is the passage in John chapter 6, beginning in verse number 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now, they take that literally to believe that every time they hold the Lord's Supper or communion, Holy Eucharist as they call it, that the elements, the, the host, which they call the bread, and the wine literally become the, bread, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And as they distribute it to the people in the church, they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. Let me just say this. Jesus Christ often used metaphors and, and, uh, and symbolism. In fact, in John 10 and verse number 9, he said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Was Jesus Christ literally a door like we see on this building here? No, he was obviously speaking symbolically. In John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine, and ye are the branches. Are you really a branch? Is he really literally a vine? If so, we're talking about pantheism now. So obviously, he was speaking symbolically there. The key to this is verse number six, uh, 63 in this chapter It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Note this, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He told them, I'm speaking spiritually, in a metaphor, symbolically. In Matthew 26, when he actually held the Lord's Supper service, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Now, he held up that chunk of bread and said, this is my body. He was obviously speaking symbolically. His actual body was present. It was holding the bread up. The bread itself was not his body. Those who believe in transubstantiation and that this passage here in John 6 should be taken literally have a real problem with this one. In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. That's who they claim their founder is. And if we're going to take this literally, there's an embarrassing connection here, isn't there? Was he really saying, Peter, you are the devil? No. Again, he was speaking in a metaphor. Now, the proponents of, of, uh, of the Lord's Supper or communion uh, who believe in transubstantiation also believe uh, not only that, be- that the elements become the literal body and blood of Christ, but they believe that Christ is crucified afresh all over again. There is this repetitious sacrificing of Jesus over and over and over again, thousands of times every day throughout the world, millions of times over the years. Jesus Christ literally has to come down and be crucified all over again. Is that scriptural? Well, we could look at a lot of verses, but Hebrews 10.10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Speaking again in verse 12, But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Christ does not need to be sacrificed over and over and over again daily, thousands of times throughout the world. That is blasphemy. 
Besides all that, the literal body of Christ is in heaven. We also read in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, it says, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's where Christ is today. He's not getting sacrificed over and over and over again. Besides, if you are eating the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, that's cannibalism. That's not what he's endorsing here. He's not saying, drink my blood. Eating or drinking blood is forbidden by God, actually. In Leviticus 17.10, it says, And whatsoever man there, there be that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. It was a death sentence. In fact, when the Jerusalem council was trying to hammer out just some very basic things for the Gentiles to observe in Acts 15, that was one of the four things. No eating blood. No eating blood. So it cannot mean that. Also, in Holy Eucharist, this, this, uh, this sacrament of the Church of Rome, whenever they, they uh, take that host, they kneel before it. In fact, at that part of the Mass, you may notice you're asked to kneel down. Or the minister himself will genuflict before it, which is something else forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 4 says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, notice, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And so we don't practice idolatry, all right? In fact, even Luther denied transubstantiation, and, and yet he had to come up with something to counter it. So he came up with consubstantiation. And that is the teaching that the elements there, the, the bread and the wine, are not literally changed into the body and the blood, but they are mystically present there. And I've never been able to figure that out. It's, it's confusing. And it's a departure from the simplicity of the memorial of the Lord's Supper service. That's all it was ever meant to be, a memorial. So it, it's not a sacrament. It's not transubstantiation. Uh, it's not the equivalent of the, the Christian Passover. It's been called that. No, Christ is the Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So the picture of Passover is Jesus Christ. No, Jesus simply used the occasion of the Passover, and, uh, and he implemented, implemented a new church ordinance. Now, also, I mentioned it's not a sacrament. What's a sacrament? Well, a sacrament is something that implies saving grace, <clears throat> something that has the power to actually take you to heaven. Uh, the Lord's Supper service doesn't have any of that. And, and it's not a fellowship meal. There are those who, who treat it like that or were treating it like that in the early days. In fact, the Bible mentions those feasts of charity. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would. Here we find the book of, of 1 Corinthians, which is a rebuke to the church at Corinth for really doing a lot of dumb stuff. Paul has to take this whole epistle and the next to really straighten out those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and in verse number 21, he says, well, back up to verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
So again, it's not this fellowship, but this eating thing. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and another, or one is hungry, and a, another is drunken. Uh, what? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Notice in verse number 34. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest, and there was a bunch, <laughs> well, I set an order when I come. There was a lot to set in order. He said, I don't have enough ink for my quill pen. And so he's telling them here, it's not a fellowship meal. So, we know what it's not. What is it then? Well, notice in verse 20, it's the Lord's Supper. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Supper there. Back in chapter 10, and in verse 21, it's called the Lord's table. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers in the Lord's table and of the table of devils. In the same chapter, it's called communion in verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body? Of Christ, So it's the Lord's Supper, it's the Lord's table, it's called communion. Uh, what's it all about? Well, it testifies of several things when we partake of it. First of all, it's an act of obedience. We're, we're, we're told to do it. And in fact, notice in verse number 24 of chapter 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take this, or take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do. Notice those two words, in remembrance of me. It's an act of obedience, and we do it. Verse 25, After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye, as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So again, this do. By the way, I think it's a part of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, right? We find him commanding us here to do this. So, first of all, it's an act of obedience. Secondly, it's an act of remembrance. In verse number 24 at the end, it says, This do in remembrance of me. You find those same words at the end of verse 25. In remembrance of me. So, it's an act of obedience it is an act of remembrance. In Luke 22, verse 19, it says, And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. At the actual supper itself, he said, This is to be a memorial. Uh, you are to remember me by this. Now also we find back here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, it's a reminder to be thankful. In verse number 24, it says, And when he had given thanks, he break it, and so on and so forth. So it's a reminder as a remembrance to be thankful. Now, thirdly, we do it because it testifies of the sacrifice of the Son of God. It testifies of, of Jesus' sacrifice. Notice in verse number 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death, Till he come. Notice you testify, you, 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 you observe it by, uh, by, by partaking of it and show the Lord's death till he comes. Now, the Lord's Supper service also does something else. 
uh, it testifies or it declares that salvation is through blood alone. It's not by baptism. It's not by good works. Salvation is by blood alone. Back when they had the Lord's Supper service in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So it's a, a glowing, glaring testimony that salvation is through blood alone. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. There's something else about the Lord's Supper service. Fourthly, it's a time for self-examination. A time for self-examination. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, and in verse number 28, it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. There should be an examination, first of all, because if anyone partakes of it unworthily, he is bringing damnation upon himself. In fact, in verse number 29, Paul said, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, or really recognizing the magnitude of this. He goes on, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There were some who had died because they had defiled this. In verse 31, he says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So there at Corinth, God was judging them for making a mockery of the Lord's Supper service. So we see what it is. Now, the next question is, who may partake of it? Who may partake of the Lord's Supper service? And there are three thoughts here. There's something called open communion. There's something called close communion. And there is something called closed communion. Open communion, first of all, is, well, that's open to everybody who claims to be saved. And uh, I've been in churches where they, they don't know who's saved, who's not saved. They just invite everybody to partake of it there. It's, it's very uh, interdenominational, and it's very ecumenical. And you, what, what you end up there was, with is the uh, cage of many unclean and hateful birds, as we read about in Revelation. You've got a lot of doctrines there if you've got open communion. Uh, you might have uh, infant baptism, those there who are uh, partaken of it, who believe in that. There are those who are there and they may believe in, in baptismal regeneration. And uh, there may be Adventists there who have some thoughts and, and uh, new evangelicals there and, and so on. And so you've got all these people here with open communion, supposedly all able to partake of it. Well, Amos 3.3 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And I think the answer is obvious. No, they, they can't. And so when we have the Lord's Supper service, we can't be divided with a bunch of different doctrines and schisms and isms. We need to be united on the Lord's Supper service. So there is open communion. Secondly, there is close communion. Close communion. And that is a belief held by some Baptists that if, if you're saved and, and a member of a church of like faith and practice somewhere in the world, you're welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper service here with us in this particular church. Well, you can see what they believe in. They believe in the universal invisible church. And uh, they believe in all these churches basically making up the church. It, it, it's supposedly open to others of like-minded churches. Well, when you get scripturally baptized, because there's two ordinances, that baptism doesn't make you a member of some big universal invisible church. We've looked at this already. It makes you a member of that one local church. So baptism is closed, obviously. Why would the other ordinance, the Lord's Supper service, be close? 
It, it wouldn't be. God's consistent. So there's close communion, and we don't practice that here. Thirdly, there's closed communion, which teaches that those within that local church partake of it together. That would be us here. It's called the Lord's Supper. No amount of brotherly love should interfere with our thinking on this. Now, I believe that Christ held it with his local church, and I believe that the churches in the New Testament held it within their own local churches. In fact, when Paul addresses uh, this church here in verse number 2 of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Evidently, they had departed from it. And, of course, the Lord's Supper is one of the two ordinances. So he says, be diligent about doing this the way I taught you to do it. In verse number 18, notice these words. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, that's local church assembly. That's ecclesia, a called-out assembly. When ye come together. We follow that context in verse 20. When ye come together therefore into one place. He goes on, he talks about partaking of the Lord's Supper. When ye come together, you find it again in verse number 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another, and so on and so forth. When ye come together. That's local church talk. It was being observed within a local church. In fact, this epistle was addressed to a local church. It starts out in 1 Corinthians 1-2, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified or saved in Christ Jesus. Secondly, the Lord's Supper service was first instituted within a local church. Amongst those first 12 members, if you will, in Luke twenty-two fourteen, said, When the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. These 12 men constituted that first church. Jesus was their pastor, if you will. We've talked about how this church was in existence before the day of Pentecost, operating as a church would. Now look in 1 Corinthians 12, just a page forward, and verse number 28. It says, And God has set some in the church first apostles. So those 12 made up the first church. And the Lord's Supper was first instituted within a local church. Not any outsider was involved. He said, I've desired to have it with you men. Thirdly, within a local church, the, the, the Lord's Supper service is a checks and balances way of maintaining church purity. Uh, I'm going to make a point here. In 1 Corinthians 11, remember this verse in verse number 27, wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. If you have close communion and you have visiting people, visiting brethren, if you will, from out of state. They could be living in adultery. They could be hypocrites with a, a potty mouth who put on a good show in church. But you would have no way of knowing that. They, they come in and they partake of this. No, it, it's not for outside brethren. It is, I believe, restricted to a united local church. And it would really help minimize that possibility of defiling something that God holds so sacred. There, there, there's no way that you can monitor uh, behavior outside of a local church. It's hard to do it within. 
And there, there's no way that at Corinth there, if they had been having outsiders in, they could have managed, uh, monitored that. Some hypocrite from Athens over 60 miles away could have come in and, and uh, partaken and so on. Let me just say, we know each other here. I know the people of, the, of this church. We observe closed communion. And that's what Jesus observed. By the way, he dismissed Judas. If you read it carefully, before they actually had the Lord's Supper service over there in the gospel, he dismissed Judas. So we see who may partake in the Lord's Supper service, which brings us to the next question. What are the elements, the, 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 the bread and the wine? What are they all about? First of all, the bread, I believe, is to be unleavened. Unleavened bread. In the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. We read in Matthew 16, 6, that Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We know about that bunch. In fact, um, leaven's always been a picture of sin. Way back in, in Exodus 12, when they were instituting the Passover, they say it several times, no leaven in the bread. No leaven in the bread. Look in 1 Corinthians 5, since you're so close there. And uh, we read these words in verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump, even as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So the first element, the bread, is to be unleavened bread. The second element is, is to be, I believe, unfermented Grape juice. Now, I had a relative who for many years before she passed away, she got saved before she died, but she'd always say that the Lord drank wine, alcoholic wine, at the, the, the Last Supper. Well, you can study uh, the four Gospels where they had the Lord's Supper service. You won't find any mention of wine. Did you know that? Um, in fact, in Luke 22, for example, verse 18, he said, For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And you could look at the other Gospels as well. It was to be pure grape juice, which I believe is an accurate symbol of the pure, untainted, shed blood of Jesus Christ. Alcoholic wine is not. Uh, the word wine in the Bible is a very generic word, especially in the New Testament, the Greek word oinos, O-I-N-O-S. And it could mean from uh, the grape still in the clusters on the vine to that which has been taken out and squashed and, and uh, the uh, grape juice extracted to that which has had yeast added and, and fermentation has taken place and become alcoholic. But there's a distinguishing a mark between the two. The Bible even mentions new wine and old wine. Jesus did in, in Matthew 9.16. Uh, the old wine requires time, obviously, temperature, leaven, and so on. I think uh, some of that came into place after the flood when really things changed, and that's why Noah got drunk, and, and there's this curse among the world. That's another message. But there are over 160 verses in the Bible that speak against alcohol. And so would Christ serve that at the Last Supper? Also, if there's leaven present in the wine, that's a picture of sin. So Jesus Christ, I do not believe, uh, served alcoholic wine. In fact, he was offered wine, if you will, or something to stupefy the pain of crucifixion on the cross, and he refused it. In Mark 15, 23, they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. He said no. So I believe it's pure Grape juice. 
So you've got your, your two elements. They're both unleavened. Which brings us to our final thought. What is the meaning of these two elements? Well, the broken bread is symbolic of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And as, as we partake of that broken body, it reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, His incarnation, that He literally took on flesh. We read in 1 Timothy 3.16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Word became flesh, the Bible says, and dwelt among us. So it reminds us of His, his incarnation. Hebrews 10.5 says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And that body would be broken on Calvary's cross. The flesh would be torn on the cross. And when we look at that broken bread, that's what we think of. Now, what about the grape juice, that fruit of the vine? Well, it's a picture of, obviously, the shed blood of Christ. And it reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, the, the serious nature of sin. Sin is not some light thing to be chuckled about. In Hebrews 9.22, the Bible says that almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission of sin. So it reminds us of the serious nature of sin. And secondly, that grape juice reminds us of the cost of salvation. It, it, it took blood. We read in 1 Peter 1.18 that we were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so it reminds us of the cost of salvation. It took the precious blood of Christ. Let me just say in closing, if the Lord's Supper service is not a sacrament, it does not save, it is not literally crucifying Christ over and over and over again. It's not the actual body and blood of Christ. It's not some mystical presence of it. What is it? It's simply a memorial. It's something God gave us to help us to remember what Christ did on Calvary's cross. We close with these verses back in chapter 11 here of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 11, verse number 23. It says, Paul says, For I received of the Lord that which... Also I delivered unto you that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do, notice, in remembrance of me. It's just a memorial. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink of it. Notice these words, in remembrance of me. Man has come along over the years and complicated it so badly. Leave it to the simple carpenter of Nazareth to make it so simple. And it's simply a memorial. Well, we'll pick up with this next time. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.